This week on Inside the Ropes, the Women's British Open, whatever you call it, a very special preview from Troon. We chat with the previous winner of the tournament, Karen Lunn, and we drop to Las Vegas of all places to catch up with Lucas Herbert. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. Or you might even be listening to us on the radio, wherever you are and however you're doing it. It's great to have you with us on Inside the Ropes, episode number 177. Another significant week in the world of golf. Most of the stuff happening on the course this weekend as opposed to off it. Big show today. Lucas Herbert and Karen Lunn going to join us. Lunny, of course, the women's... I don't know what it's called anymore. The, help me out here, Mark Hayes, who joins us again, as he always does. What do we, what do we call this... <laughs> I used to call it the, I want to call it the British Open for women or the Women's British Open. I'm not sure I'm allowed to anymore. I'm not even sure, Andy. I think we must have deferred to whatever Karen tells us a bit later on, to be honest with you. It's so confusing. Well, in in my eyes, I will say that it's just uh, grown an extra leg for me. Whatever the Women's British Open is called, um, it's grown an extra leg for me in the last handful of years. It helps that Curry Webb's been a sort of dominant force, but I really think that. Um, from a smaller tournament that hasn't got rich history, it only started in 1976, that it's really come on in leaps and bounds. And I think it's great that the women's game is getting the same um, feel about it historically and, and in terms of global significance on the women's side for a couple of weeks here that the men's side seems to enjoy naturally. So that the women's British Open, whatever we're going to call it, um, you know, gets its place in the sun. I think is significant. And for me, it's a far bigger event this week than the start of the FedEx Cup Championships on the other side of the Atlantic, which it goes yeah, up head-to-head against. Why do you, Have you got a theory as to why it is a relatively young championship, given the, given the lengthy status of the men's version? Well, we obviously know that LPGA fought the, the great fight through the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s to get a, uh, a foothold in the American game, let alone the global game. So... Uh, the the powerful force that made women's golf what it is um, was not really relevant in the on the I guess the eastern side of the Atlantic for a long time. Yeah. Um, the ladies European tour was a I don't know it's hard to put a finger on it but a far less powerful entity and even mm. though it attracted some great players and a lot of the LPGA members used to go across and play on the LET events as a matter of course just to to fill out around out a season. Um, even in Karen Lund's time. Um, but it, it is sort of amazing that we didn't have a Women's British Open until 1976. I mean, there were there, there were odds yeah. and ends tournaments here and there that sort of pretended to be important, but it is sort of amazing. That's even a year or two after the Women's Australian Open was first played. Um, it, it does seem odd, but it does seem right to me that it is now a major. Um, you can <laughs> argue all you like about the Evian Championship and and some of the other sponsor-induced ones on the United States or Canada through the years, the DeMaurier Classic, obviously the cigarette brand. But this one seems right to me, sponsor names and name changes excluded, that it's being played on significant courses now too is a key factor and that everyone turns up just like they do in the men's majors. doesn't matter what you're doing now, you make a beeline for this tournament. So uh, it even drags across the, those who aren't familiar with playing on Lynx courses as a matter of course yeah, now. so Which is a great um, thing to see, isn't it? I oh, wonder, yeah. Hazy, whether... And some, somebody could write a dissertation or, or a, a PhD or something, do a PhD and something like this, but 
I wonder whether, you know, a lot of the um, storied golf clubs um, over in the British Isles, uh, they've had a resistance to letting, some of them have had a resistance to letting female members in. So I wonder whether a bit of that old way of thinking has somehow permeated its way into um, the kind of tournament setup of um, of golf on the on the European continent and, and the British Isles. I wonder whether that's had a role to play give, towards the sort of relatively youthful status of this of this championship somewhere along the line. If you look back to the host clubs, Andy, of the whatever this event is called, um, it's going to take a while. There's going to be one or two here and there until we get up to the more modern part of it. But Fulford, Lindrick, Fox Hills, Southport and Ainsdale, Wentworth, obviously a big name, Northumberland, Royal Birkdale's a big name, Woburn's a big name, Moore Park, St Malian, Ferndown, um, Sunningdale's a big name. And it's not until we sort of get to uh, 1998 where we get to Lytham and St Anne's uh, where it really starts taking hold on some of the courses that we've known to uh, yeah, just be associated right, yeah. with the men's open. And yeah. and from then on, it's to made the odd return it's played at Woburn a couple of times on the different courses it's been at Kings Barnes um, which is a I guess not a traditional course but a very good one in Scotland as well but other than that it's been at Liverpool and St Andrews and Birkdale and and now at Troon for the first time um, it, it's really starting to take a hold in on the traditionally great courses that we all know um, I think that's really significant for it and what you said there is 100% right in my eyes. It's it's much easier now for the RNA to sort of thrash out a deal with one of the clubs on the men's rotor than it once was. And that's, you know, that's a, these are, these are um, not fast moving, but they're really significantly moving times for, for women's sport generally. And golf is no exception in the British Isles here. Speaking of great courses on, on over on, in America, we got to see one of them. We don't always get to see them. It's a lament of you know golf fans all over the world that we don't get to see the PGA Tour played on, um, you know, often the great American golf courses. We've all heard, if we haven't been to Band and Dunes, about it as a facility. Uh, we got to see a bit of it this week with the US Amateur. Uh, look, it just it, just visually hazy. What a difference it makes to watch a golf tournament play. We, there's elements about the amateur that we need to probably have a chat about, but what a difference it makes to the visual sell and appeal of the game when you get it played on on a beautiful golf course. You know, Andy, when the, the President's Cup came to Royal Melbourne, even though the died and the wool people around the other side of the world all know Royal Melbourne, everyone and their dog overseas were saying, oh, my God, we've got to play more tournaments in Australia. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God, we need to play you know championship events at Royal Melbourne. Well, here we are. This is obviously not a classic traditional course. But is there anyone who watched the US Amateur who's not making a... Uh, a mark in their diary when we can all travel again to go to Bandon. And there's four or five, I think, maybe definitely four, maybe five great courses. I haven't been to the... And they played on the trails and the dunes course. And every time you saw a ball hit into the sky, you just went, oh my God, look at that for a layout. Look at that. And it's so enthicing and enthralling and captivating. And, And, you know, for all the good things that were said about Harding Park, for example... It's not. It doesn't carry this course's boots to the game in not terms of in a million uh, years. No, you know something no. spectacle and something to behold. It's just it was a, it was a it was a treat to watch um, the fog uh, rolling yeah. in on the last day. Sort of added to the drama. Didn't add to the vision much, but uh, yeah, no, it's just a special place up there on that coastline. 
So all American final, you know, there's clearly you know, the depth of player, the depth of caliber of player is and quality of player is speaks for itself. Uh, Strafaki beats Osmond in the final. Not that their names we know now. I didn't know much about them beforehand, so I'm not going to pretend that. Oh yeah, no, this Strafaki kid, I've known about him for a while. Like, <laughs> so, so we we wish them all the rest. I don't know whether I don't know how much people watched it, but again, I, I don't know whether overall, other than the fact that these kids can play. I don't know whether there was the US amateur was a great advertisement or a great um, standard bearer for the way the game will be in the future. If you're looking for players to sort of you know, play a different brand of golf or play a bit quicker or, or just 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 embrace a, uh, something from a bog, and I reckon we we didn't see much. We've we've seen blokes standing behind other guys' putt lines having been need to be ushered away by the bloke with a putter in his hand. We've seen caddies jumping into bunkers, picking up handfuls of sand to test the <laughs> depth of the sand. Um, we've had the, the slow play was crazy. I mean, it was it was just it was it was awfully slow at times, like terribly slow at times. It's not if if you are hopeful that you know we can reclaim a bit of the lost art. I'm not sure we got a. Massive shot in the arm from what we saw at Panda Dunes over the last week. I couldn't see any of that because I couldn't see past Tyler Strafaki's dad as the caddy. Have <laughs> you ever seen a bloke in more television frames in your life? Uh, it, it was extraordinary. I don't even know what to say. Strafaki had to tell his old man to move at times. <laughs> he was he was down playing a critical shot. I must have been the 34. Fourth hole from deep rough behind the green. You actually couldn't see it because his dad was blocking the camera. It was extraordinary. Yeah, like, anyway, um, yeah. we all hear Andy about to your point about um, college players coming out and ripping the you know the pro uh, ranks apart. And we made that discussion last week with um, Colin Morikawa yeah. and his and his peers. Um, unfortunately, the movement goes both ways, and the crap that's on the PGA Tour has seeped back into the college game. Um, the more they expect green reading books and um, five-minute meetings over every shot with caddies, etc., on the TV as being perceived as normal, then the more that creeps back into the amateur game. The flow goes both ways, um, fortunately in some ways, unfortunately in others. Um, yeah, I, it, it's, it was hard to watch. I couldn't believe that that caddy... Two things. The one that he moved all the sand in the bunker on the 18th hole against Strafaki, no less, in the early rounds of the match play. Yeah. Um, that guy's going to be buying his opponent or his his, his uh, player beers forever. Um, but Extraordinary. That he then denied moving sand was a straight out of the Patrick Reed playbook. It was unbelievable. Uh, it was so blatantly obvious. It was ridiculous. Uh, so that was that. Um Jack Trent, was he the longest standing? Was he the last Aussie up in the championship? Yeah. We had a great chat with Jack Trent on Inside the Ropes we last did. year. He's the um, he's from the Headland Golf Club in, on the Sunshine Coast, following, in a lot of ways, uh, Adam Scott's footsteps, who's played a lot at Headland and also um, now at UNLV, where Scott once attended college. Um, he's been over there. He's heading into his senior year this year. But he's, he's really clamouring around to find whether he can uh, play any tournaments. And... To that point, Andy, he actually drove up from Las Vegas to uh, to Bandon in Oregon, which is halfway between, if you're on, thinking on a map, it's halfway between Portland and San Francisco. So he did a 14-hour drive up there just to, to um, you know, because he has the time for one. 
Um, it was safe to do it for, with another, uh, and he's just looking for places to play. So he's actually going to play a few other uh, spots around. And, and he, he finished, he made it through one round of match play, didn't knock it out of the second round. Uh, he was close a couple of times late in the back nine, but just couldn't make a key putt when it mattered. But mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's barely played this year, and he, was, he talked to me a bit about that during the week, um, I think he was vaguely happy. Uh, he would have prepared, would have been better had he prepared a little bit more for it, but yeah, that's yeah, out of his sure. hands. So um, yeah. a huge talent. And, and the way he was talking about how to attack the game really sounded very professional to me. I've got a lot of high hopes for him too coming up. Good. Um, bit of uh, tournament scheduling news over in Europe this week, which which is which is positive. We've seen a lot of uh, big events over in in Europe, of course, cancelled for the year. A couple of Rolex Series events have been given dates, which is great for us who like watching our golf over in that neck of the woods. Scottish Open has been locked in. It's a couple of big weeks in a row, actually. The Scottish Open has been locked in for October one through four, and then the BMW PGA Championship the next week. So we've got a couple of dates for a couple of the bigger um, uh, tournaments over in that neck of the woods, which is good to see. Um, and, and around the world... Yeah, go on. And they're on the back of the Irish Open as well, so um, it's going to be... Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Three really significant events in a row. Um, around the world, no, the Australians were sticking their nose sort of on the edge of contention here and there. Uh, no one really went deep. On the on the last day, Rod Pampling probably the best of the Aussies, the old boy um, in the tour to the championship. The, what was it? The tour championship event? I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. Jerry Kelly won it five under, but Pants was tied for five for fifth, about five back. So, any other? What was the most notable performance from an Australian perspective on around the world's tours for you this week? I think it was probably Pampling, and I think we're going to be talking about him a lot. I, you know, no disrespect to Dave McKenzie and Stephen Leaney. Uh, Rod Pampling's on a different level for them in, throughout his playing career, and he's just removed from the PGA Tour where he was still competitive. So I really expect him to do big things in the next couple of years on that tour when he finds a groove. He's played the courses a bit, and normality returns. He's he's a name to watch. I think Andy, uh, as we sort of prepare to speak to Karen Lunn here, um, significantly for me, Hannah Green came out of the blocks from a big yeah, rest in great. WA nicely, and Minji Lee adopted adapted rather to the the Lynx game at at Renaissance and the Scottish Women's Open pretty quickly. And they're our best two chances for success at Troon this week. Uh, And that they were comfortable in the conditions and Hannah wasn't sort of ring rusty. Then that was a really good sign for me both. So Sam Sam Horsfield, clearly a name to keep an eye on. He's, he's, He's winning a lot and he's contending a lot and he's clearly a pretty aggressive player. Uh, over in Europe, he wins the Celtic Classic. Jim Herman's weekend was unbelievable at the Wyndham. <laughs> I mean, he shot 16 under on the weekend. Six, Jim Herman, we're not talking about Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy here. 61-63 shot on the weekend. 16 under, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I, I, oh, I, I actually... Uh... I wouldn't say I know him, but I've played. I have played a um, pro am round with him once, yeah. and and I did watch him and interview him a lot when he won the Mooner Classic down near Melbourne, all those moons ago, Andy, back in the mm. mid to back in the mid noughties when the Nationwide Tour was here. Yeah, um, we were full of take, hope. Yeah, exactly. It didn't yeah. take too kindly to me actually calling him Ginger Megs 
um, a couple of times because he looks, <laughs> mate, he's dead set the spitting image of Ginger Men. He, he thought it was a bit rude for a sort of uh, an upstart Aussie to be calling him some cartoon character. But nonetheless, a really nice fella. Um, he's got an amazing backstory. He was um, coaching at one of Donald Trump's old places back in the day before Trump was Trump. Um, so he's an amazing backstory and just a capacity to do something stupid and then be unheard of for years and years. And, um, you know, 61, 63 on the weekend of the PGA tournament. Holy cow. And, and 21 under. The, the, the numbers to win the tournaments at the lesser events these days are just ridiculous, just mm. out of control, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. A few other bits and pieces we'll get to uh, throughout the show, but you mentioned Carolyn's about to join us, the 1993 uh, major championship winner, the winner of the Women's British Open at Woburn back in 93 is about to join us. Uh, we'll clear a break and come back with Lenny on the other side of the break. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Great to have you with us. Uh, huge week, obviously, in the world of golf, the Women's British Open. In fact, I just want to call it the British Open. Uh, it's the women's version uh, being teed up. Am I allowed to do that, Hazy? I'm not no, allowed to do that, am I? You're not, Andy. They've officially dropped the British. So it's just the, well, technically it's the AIG Open, but it's just from after the sponsor reference, it's now just the Open. You're not even allowed to call it the the AIG Women's British Open anymore. You just, you just It's just the it's, AIG Open. It's not the women's, it's not British, it's just the AIG Open. Well, this is a nonsense. Let's see what um, a former winner of this <laughs> a story championship has got to say about that. Karen Lunner, known well known to everybody here at Inside the Ropes, former champion, uh, and I want to say a major champion too, by the way, irrespective of the change in uh, rating or recognition of this tournament uh, after Karen won it. She's been good enough to join us on the show. Karen, thanks for joining us on the program. No worries at all. Good morning, guys. Do you call it the AI? What do you call it? What do you what do you call this event? Well, I think the players have been told to call it the AIG Women's Open, and that's what the website says. So that's what I'm calling it. But it's certainly not referred to as the British Open anymore. So um, yeah, uh, great great work for the RNA for um, you know elevating this championship to the position it's in today. I imagine, given your position in the game, have to tow some sort of you know party line here, but. It seems crazy to me that it doesn't have the British Open connected to the title. I know the sponsor's name's important, but for its connection with history and tying this into, you know, the the the, um, the storied nature of this tournament, it seems a bit of a shame that it doesn't have the British Open attached to it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because even though we know that the Men's Open Championship is the British Open, it's, it's referred to as the Open Championship. And when anybody says the British Open, they're very um, quickly corrected. And, oh, no, no, it's the Open Championship. So I think the reason behind it is obviously to align it with um, alongside the Open Championship. So you have the Open Championship and then you have the Women's Open Championship. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I don't mind. And I think the players um, seem to have embraced it. I know Charlie Hull was asked uh, in a press conference yesterday, um, yeah, no, what, what, do you actually know what the name of the tournament is? She says, oh, it's a British Open. Um, and they're like, you know, she was very quickly corrected as well. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it'll just take everyone, a, a, you know, a little while to get their heads around it, but I don't mind at all. Uh, the way you've explained that, it makes perfect sense. So let me ask you this question. You won it in 93, and it, um, it officially became a major when it was attached to the LPGA sometime later. Do you consider yourself a major championship winner? 
Um, no, I, I definitely don't. Um, I won the event, as you said, in 93. It became an LPGA cha- uh, official LPGA event in 1994 and then a major in, um, I think it was 2001. So, um, yeah, people might say I was a little bit unlucky. It was, you know, the field that I beat was, you know, the be- it was the best players in the world competing, but it wasn't an LPGA event and it certainly wasn't a major. So unless, uh, you know, unless somebody actually changes, um, you know, all the past winners to major champions, then I'm certainly not a, a major winner and I certainly don't ever refer to myself as that. Um, you know, I'm very proud to have won the event. Um, there's no doubt about that, but I'm certainly not a major champion. All right, well, in our eyes, we might hazy. Yeah, just... I, do, I sort of think it, I sort of do think of you as a major champion, Karen, because I just through um, I know that this tournament's only been running since 1976, but it, it is such an important event already, and I, I sort of tend to think of any winner of this is not only a major champion but groundbreaking. So I'm 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 with Andy. I'm gonna I'm gonna think of you as a major champion as we chat away here. I hope you don't mind. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so so what do you mem- how vivid are your memories of it, Carol? I mean you, you're clearly bolted in. Um, I've tried to find round by round breakdowns um, of the scores, which, which are very I've found increase in, incredibly difficult to find, but. Um, tell us about you know the, the your progress through that championship back in in Woburn at Woburn in '93. Yeah, I mean, I can't ex- I can't actually remember all the scores either. I don't know that I was up there pretty much from day one, and I know that I had a five shot lead uh, going into the final round, which you know it's, it's probably the worst kind of lead you can have. It's nice to have that buffer, but you know if you don't win, you lose it. So it was a pretty sleepless night I had the night before the the final round. Um, I was actually really fortunate. I was playing with um, Catherine. Uh, she was then Marshall, went on to be Catherine Emery, and played on the LPJ tour and won there. Um, so she was a good mate of mine, and you. Know, in the groups, um, in the groups ahead of us, you know there was Patty Sheehan, Helen Alfredson, Annika Storenstam, um, Brandy Burton, who were all some of the best players in the world at that time. So, um, you know, I was fortunate that final day. I did have you know a good pairing and. Uh, Jason Hamilton McCaddy, who has gone on to caddy for some of the best players in the world, um, including a long stint with Lydia Ko, so he was a great help to me as well. So yeah, I've got very fond memories. Obviously, it was a long time ago, um, but you know, I've got, still got the photos, and then obviously a lot of the memories um, are still there. It was, it was, I think I won by, I think it was eight or nine, eight. nine shots eight. or something yeah. in the year. eight. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. It's a long way. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and even on the back nine, I can still remember how nervous I was. Um, but yeah. Very fond memories, and yeah, I guess no one can ever take that away from me, which is nice. Do you remember early in your round, Karen, whether you kind of, you know, you had that five shot lead that you, you talked about going in? Did you do you remember whether early in your round you, you sort of got under the card and had or, or stretched that lead um, early ish in your round, or, or did the stretch come a bit later? Yeah, I remember I got off to a pretty solid start. Um, we played the Dukes course at Woburn, um, which is the course that the men's used to men used to play for the PGA Championship of England. Um, really, really good golf course, but a tough start. So I remember just playing fairly conservatively early on, and then I made an eagle on I think the the sixth or the seventh hole, and that sort of you know chilled me out a little bit. I was, was I remember being tense, but but like I said, you know my caddy Jason was a great help, and we were good mates, and we just tried to chat about anything and any every, anything and everything really just to try and take your mind off because you know going out there under that pressure and just trying to keep focus for that five hours it's almost impossible so you have to have to find a way to sort of chill out in between shots and then refocus when the time comes but yeah you know even on the back nine I remember you know the, the finishing holes on that course are so tough um, and I remember one of the guys on the, on the on the European tour made an 11 or something up the last hole when he had a four or five shot lead so that was in the back of my mind the whole oh, no. time and, 
Yeah, and uh, once I hit my two iron off the 18th hole down the middle, I knew I was pretty safe. So, uh, yeah, no, like great memories, but you know, it, it is very stressful leading any golf tournament when you know, you know, back then it was a fifty thousand pound um, winner's check as well, which back then was an awful lot of money. Um, so, you know, there was also that sort of pressure. You know, you think that's that's life changing money. You know, in those days for for a woman golfer, so it was, uh, oh yeah, God. it was all a lot to take in, and certainly that it was celebrated very well in the evening as well. <laughs> I'll ask you more about that money and where the game's gone from then, Karen. But it just sounds to me, Andy, a lot like um, Ian Baker Finch. You know, you've got a good mate playing with you in the same group, just as he did at Royal Birkdale with Mark O'Meara, and a great bond mm-hmm. with the caddy as he did with Peter. Karen, it's just it's a, it's a critical thing, isn't it? We sort of you're all good players, but you un, we underestimate from outside the ropes the importance of feeling at ease in those crunch moments. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's where a good, a good caddy or a great caddy comes into his own. You know, it's just, and you know, I can do my own yardages, I greens, I can, I can, I know how to play golf, but it's those times, whether it be, um, it's when the pressure's on. Sometimes a good caddy comes into his own when you're really playing poorly and they've got to try and get you to lift. You know, if, you, if you're struggling to make the cut, that's some of the toughest times a player and a caddy can go through. And also, again, you know, when you're in contention, they just need to know, to, you know, what to say and when to say it because obviously, that you know, there's an awful lot of pressure and, and yeah, I, you can never underestimate the, the uh, you know, what a caddy does. I know some of them earn ridiculous amounts of money on the PGA Tour, but, you know, I suppose it's all relative and, and they absolutely earn it. So going back to that money question that you, you sort of put on the table a second ago, £50,000 would have been a hell of a lot of cash at that time. Um, the women's games come a long way, um, you know, under your stewardship for, for a fair part of it as well, mm. but it, it's, it's still building towards what it realistically should be in the future, hopefully. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, some of the bigger events, I think the Evian cha- Championship was elevated a few years ago. Frank Rebo, you know, he said, no, I want to have the biggest event in women's golf. And then obviously you saw the Women's US Open purse go up and then the CME and then the KPMG come along. And then obviously the RNA made the decision to elevate this event. And, you know, they're playing for four and a half million dollars uh, in prize money this weekend. And that's US. So the winner's going to come away with near enough to a million dollars. Um, of our money, you know, so it, it, I wouldn't say it's life-changing to, to Hannah or to Minji should they win, but, you know, if a Steph Kiriakou or, um, you know, one of the other players were to win, it, it would be it would be life-changing, absolutely. Karen, can I, you talked about having a good night um, after the win. This always interested me, you know, with golfers. It's a, it's a, you do have your team, obviously, but it's a pretty solo pursuit. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's you and, and you alone out there. When you win anything, but when you win one of these really big championships and, and the celebrations go on, you're surrounded by people you love and friends and all of that sort of stuff, but is it a difficult success to share with people? It is, and, and back then it wasn't um, as it is today where everyone travels with their team. They've got their caddy, their coach, their manager, their sports psychologist, their nutritionist, their fitness coach. So pretty much now it's very different. You know, when a player wins, they'll celebrate with their team. So everyone is equally bought into it. You know, they've contributed and they, you know, celebrate accordingly. Um, back in the day, it was just literally you and your caddy and your mates. And um, I'm sure Plates, you know, would talk about the days he played in Europe as well. It was, you know, it, it was players hung out together. There was no internet. Um, there was not a lot to do. So, you know, you tended to socialise a lot more. So when you won, you know, your mates were all there to celebrate with you. And that still does happen a little bit. But, um, it, you know, it was, it was generally, I know that the night that I won, you know, I had five or six of my mates on tour, obviously my sister, Jason McCaddy, and, and a few other friends away from golf um, because I live fairly close to um 
to where uh, to where Woburn was. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's very different today than it was back then. Um, but obviously, you know, when you win and your mates have maybe missed the cut, that's a tough balance as well. You know, they're they're very happy for you. But you know, by the time you get to yeah. about ten o'clock and you're on your tenth beer, they're like, yeah, okay, this is enough. We've celebrated with you. We're off. <laughs> Uh, I want to. I, I want to know who's the. I, you know, there might be a debate about the golf as well, Karen. But I want to know who's the better partier out of you and Marty, your sister. Um, probably Marty in her heyday. Um, yeah, and, and I'm sure um, one Kari Webb won't mind me uh, saying that she was pretty good at celebrating her wins as well. <laughs> so, we had many. Of course, Kari had a lot more wins than any of us. But um, I think yeah. I think back then, back then we all did a pretty good job of celebrating with her as well. So you won. You won 16 times around the world, 10 times in Europe, Karen. I'm interested, um, a couple of years, well, yeah, about a decade after you won your, your, um, your British Open, you became chairman of the board uh, of the LET. You kept playing and you won a couple of times still after you took on that role. How difficult was that, getting that balance right between you know, being a professional player and still wanting to you know, focus on that, but also balancing the role that you had looking after the tour? Yeah, I mean, it was difficult at times. And at some of those times when I was um, on the board and the chair, we went the tour went through some tough times. And, you know, I, one of the things I'm proudest of is that I think that when I left, the tour was actually in pretty good shape. And myself and, and Alex Armas, that was the CEO at the time, I think, you know, with ourselves and the board, we did a pretty good job of, of putting, you know, putting the tour in a pretty good place. Obviously, things changed. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that's because, you know, the reason is because I left. But when Alex left, I think obviously there are a few issues. Um, but it is, it's, it's very difficult. There were tournaments where I, I couldn't have a practice round where I had other things to deal with and, mm. and stuff like that. But, you know, as a golfer, you think you're really busy. But, you know, when you when you get into the real world, you're not, you know. If your average person gets up really early, they travel to work, they work all day, they come home, they travel home, they cook their dinner and they go to bed. Whereas as a golfer, you have a lot of spare time on your hands. So it was actually really good for me, for my personal development to do that as well. Um, and during that time, I also did some TV commentary as well, just to, to throw that in as, as well. So, um, yeah, no, but I think it was really good for me, you know, because, it, you know, life wasn't golf. I had other things in my life and were keeping me busy and I was learning a lot as I went along. So, yeah, and no, I think I think it was it was really good for me and obviously set me up um, in a way for the, for the job that I'm doing now with AFPG. You still have a lot to do with, you know, young players and female players around the world, obviously. Um, do you think there is... Uh, amongst the kind of cohort of modern players, do you think they are thinking beyond the here and now in terms of I'm interested in other things and, and when this golf finishes, I, playing finishes, I, I, I want to, um, you know, kind of gear myself up to do something next, have a kind of transition out of playing? Do you think that's at the forefront of many players' minds these days? I, I, I really don't. I know that... All along, she only wants to play till a certain date, and she's, you know, done some courses and studied, and which is great. But I don't think a lot of players do think beyond their playing careers. And obviously, the money that they're making now, you know, you look at Minji; she's made over six million US dollars in, in, you know, what five years or, or something on tour. So, you know, she could probably hang up the sticks now and, and retire. Whereas when we played, that wasn't an option. You know, you weren't making that kind of money, and you knew you had to play. You know, I played for almost thirty years. 
Um, you know, and I guess that's one of the things I'm most proud about that I won when I was 19, and then I won when I was I think 43 or 44. So, you know, to play for that long, but but I loved it as well. You know, I always knew that there would be a life after golf for me, and, and I did sort of keep. You know, I was always doing a few things online, and I read a lot. So, yeah, I was always trying to prepare myself. But you, you get so bogged down in playing and and what you're doing. I think that I don't think the younger players now, in general, really do think that much about it. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Do you- do you think the women's game is making huge strides? It seems to be, from my perspective, Karen, that uh, you know it's it's becoming more, I guess, equitable in the discussion. If that makes sense, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but we once yeah, perhaps no, well, might not have talked about the women's British Open like this, um, but we do now, just as a matter of course. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and obviously, you know, the world has changed. It's not just sport. It's not just golf. And it's not just the women's open. You know, the world has changed in terms of equality and equity for for women in business, for women in sport. Um, the media have had to change their attitudes. Um, there's obviously been a lot of pressure from from everywhere. You know, on the media to to give. Um, you know, to give airtime to women's sport. And, you know, there's still a, a fair way to go. But, you know, for me sitting on here talking to you guys and it is absolutely fantastic because we're talking about a women's golf event. Um, I think Mike Wan's just done an amazing job with the LPGA since he's been, since he's, he came on board. And I think it's just over 10 years since um, he came on. And, and the LPGA was, was having its struggles, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, he really, um, you know, he, he made the players realise that the tour was about them. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about the other people that worked for the tour. It was all about them. And they really bought into, I guess, his vision and his story. Um, and he's done a fantastic job. Like I said, just the fact that, you know, th- this week's event's four and a half million US and it's not the biggest event in women's golf. You know, there's, I think there's two others bigger and, mm. and a couple around the, the same mark. You know, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And, and like I said, I think it's a good time for women's sport. Um, obviously, you know, in Australia, you know, you've, you've got the, the women's um, 2020 uh, World Cup final, which I was fortunate enough to go to. It was absolutely amazing. And to, to read the stories after that, that, you know, that, that people people, um, I guess, resonate to women's sport and can relate to, to these women. A lot of those cricketers, they've got other jobs and they're studying and, you know, they're incredible women, you know, and, and I think that they're finally starting to be valued, you know, that they are incredible women athletes um, and they happen to be very good at cricket. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that the attitudes here in Australia have definitely changed, um, certainly the last 10 years and, and you know, it's, it's certainly moving in the right direction. We could talk about that, I reckon, all day, and we might another oh, easily, time. Easily, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm particularly interested, obviously, though, this week, Karen, you and I chatted a little bit off-Broadway yesterday about how many women from Australia are in this field this week. Um, I sort of thought, and this is testament to my naivety here, but I sort of thought that nine might be a, some sort of record, but you, 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 you told me otherwise, and I, it's been... Uh, a rich tournament as far as Australian involvement goes and it continues this week. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think when we talked about, you know, how many players are in the field, you know, you look at how many women professionals that we have out there playing on all of the tours, nine out of probably, you know, 25 is a great representation. Whereas back in, you know, I think it was 1988 where we had 17, we probably had 45 women pros playing all around the world. So I think... Um, the percentages say that, you know, nine is, is, a, is a very good number in the field this week. And I think that, you know, we definitely have some live chances there. Obviously, um, Hannah being a major champion, and she hadn't played until last week. She'd had a break 
um, for COVID and came back and, and played pretty well last week. Minji still looking for that first major. Um, and then you've got Gabby Ruffles, who uh, we, do, we don't know how good Gabby is yet. We know that she's been a great amateur. Um, you know, she's obviously an ex- exceptional athlete. Um, and it'll be really great to see how she does this week. And young Steph Kiriakou, who, um, you know, she didn't have a great week last week either. But, you know, again, none of these girls have played any competitive golf for the last few months. So I think we have to forgive them, a, a, you know, a bad run, as you'd say in horse racing terms. Yeah. I, I, I think we've got an amazingly deep field here, and I, I really don't discount um, Catherine Kirk either. She seems to bob up in Europe now and again, and I, I think she's a good chance. But I did want to talk to you about um, Steph Kiriakou, who you brought up there. It's hard to sort of fathom what must be going through her mind this week. Uh, this is her, I want to say her third professional tournament, Karen. It's the Women's British Open. It's been an yep. extraordinary year for everyone, but for Steph Kiriakou from the Australian Ladies Classic as an amateur, the victory there on the ALPG Tour to this point now, is a, it's a story in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Steph's a great kid. She's, I think she's only 19 years old. So, you know, she's going to have a long career ahead of her. I mean, the, the way the cards lined up for her, she, as you said, she won the Australian Ladies Classic. Um, there was all the discussion about should she turn pro, shouldn't she turn pro, and the, and the decision was made. She did turn pro, and I think it was absolutely the right decision. She played next week in the New South Wales Open, but the poor kid was just so overwhelmed by everything going around her and, and the media commitments and everything. You know, I think she missed the cut by a shot or a couple of shots at the... New South Wales Open um, and obviously then you know she's fired up she's ready to play in Saudi a couple of weeks later and then COVID hits and you know so it, the timing really couldn't have been worse for her um, but you know she, she's got a long career ahead and you know I, I'm sure her expectations aren't that high and she'll be just taking everything in and obviously there won't be any crowds this week so that's a different experience but um, I noticed she played a practice round yesterday with uh, with Minji and with um, Gabby so that was obviously great for Minji to, to kind of play the elder statesman and take the two youngsters under her wing and, and have a practice round with them so um, it was great to see that and I'm sure she's probably just you know just trying to take everything in and learn as much as she can. She won't have played much links golf I've got no doubt about that and it is a different game. Um, the weather forecast is pretty horrendous for the first couple of days, um, so she probably won't know what's here. And <laughs> you know, I've played British Opens in some of the most horrendous weather you can imagine, and it's not fun. And you have to be so patient, um, you know. And sometimes experience can really help out under those occasions. But yeah, I mean, certainly with Catherine Hazy, I agree with you. She's, um, you know, she's she's played decently the last couple of weeks and. Um, tough conditions, her short game sort of comes into its own, you know, and, and her experience in a patient. So it wouldn't surprise me to see her name bob up there as well. She was runner-up, I think it I think it was at Royal Birkdale a few years ago to, to Yarnie yeah. Singh in this event. I, I, I just really don't think you can ever discount her. What I really like, Andy and, and Karen, but Andy, you might have a thought on this, is the bond that Karen speaks about there between the girls. Um, we know Hannah and Sue are tight. They're all pretty good mates with Minji. They're not necessarily going out for sixteen beers after the after the fact, like Karen and Marty and crew might have once <laughs> done. But um, they're really, really respectful and helpful of each other, and there's a real bond coming through. It's not it, it, we talk about that in the men's game. I reckon it's arguably stronger here for the Aussie women. Well, yeah, I think so. so. Karen, I think yeah, you hope so. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I do think that it's something that's been built up. Um, you know, when when we go away playing, you're so far away from home, from your family and friends. And, you know, back when I played, you know, you couldn't afford to come home during the year. It wasn't even an option. It was so far and it was so expensive. Um, you know, so you, you did rely on your friends. And, um, you know, certainly Kari has just paved the way uh, now for all these youngsters. And it's great to see what Hannah's doing now, um, what she did in a time off in, in WA, playing with all the, the kids from Mount Lawley. I mean, that, that's just gold for them. So, yeah. I think there is, as you said, you know, Hannah and, and Sue are really good mates. Um, they hang out together a lot and, you know, they don't mind hitting the town every now and again, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they like to go out and enjoy themselves as well, which is great because it can't just be golf, golf, golf. You have to have some downtime. You have to have some other interests and you have to have a bit of fun along the way. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? Hey, Karen, last one from me before we let you go. I think Hazy's right. There's a thousand things. If we decided to go down the mine shaft, we could spend hours talking to you about bits and pieces, and maybe we will, you know, one of these days. But you mentioned patience and weather, and it's going to be a factor. So that that, that probably leads into a, a, a slower um, round being played. But I, I noted Stacey Lewis, who won the Scottish Open on the weekend, was clearly frustrated by the pace of play up there. In your, you know, this is something that sort of sits in your purview at the moment in, in your role as CEO of the ALPG, obviously. Is it, how big an issue is it? How big a problem is this for, for the game broadly, but the women's game specifically? I mean, I think that it is a big problem in golf, and I think you've seen the governing bodies um, starting to address it more, um, the PGA Tour. You know, if people go out and watch golf, which obviously they can't do that a lot now, um, standing just watching people play, it takes forever. It's so boring. Um, you know, I've done it a bit, you know, on tour, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm at events, just have a wander and watch, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's like watching paint dry sometimes. Um, and, and it is. As a player, you know, I always hated playing with slow players because, you know, they... You know, I always said, you know, when I was a player, that it's kind of like cheating because they play so slowly and all of a sudden they see a guy or a girl with a stopwatch and all of a sudden they can play at a perfectly normal pace, but they choose to play slowly. Um, And then obviously if you're the fast player, you're on the clock as well. Um, So it's so frustrating as a player and I can see... Stacey's frustration coming out last week but it is an issue um, you know for TV it shouldn't be taking 5 hours 20 minutes I mean who, who wants to sit there for 5 hours 20 minutes and, and watch golf um, you know if, if, it's, if it's moving if it's fast moving you know it's not anymore um, and I think that you know somebody said uh, in that last group last week with Stacey it was one player took like a minute and a half to hit the shot and then the other players up, and they hadn't even got the yardage yet. You know, it's just you've got to be ready to go when it's your turn. So I think it is, it's definitely a big issue, not just in pro golf, in golf, in golf clubs. You hear people talking about it all the time, and obviously golfers watch pro golfers on TV and think that it's normal to have 10 practice swings, you know, where it's completely unnecessary in my, in my opinion. So, you know, I would love to see the governing bodies of the major tours because I think that until they really take a stance on it, um, you know, the smaller tours like ourselves, it's hard for us to do anything. Um, but certainly, you know, it's, there's no doubt it's an issue, and it's great to see players like Stacey speaking up. Karen, there was one moment, and I won't, you, you can be specific if you like, but that one of the players I think you may be referencing was Jennifer Song. It, it was a par three, she had a nine iron. It was a, it was a nine iron, it was a sort of stock nine iron in. She and her caddy had three books out standing on the tee, and, and they didn't have the books out when it, before it was her turn to get up. Then it was her turn to step up. And they dragged out, they had three books. He was hanging on to two and she was hanging on to one. God knows what they're looking at. I mean, it's, it's gone beyond, that sort of stuff's yeah. gone beyond a joke. 
I agree. And all these, you know, they have their Greens book and they have their Wind book and they have this book. And, and it is. It's just trying to process all that information. I mean, to me, you have a yardage. It's either one club or it's another club, you know, and that's your discussion. You know, and I understand Lynx Golf's a bit more difficult with, you know, you've got to work out where to land it and there's obviously a lot of slopes on the Greens. And, but you can still do that quickly. And, and as a caddy, like, you should be sitting down in the morning before you even go out and looking through those pin positions and, and thinking, okay, well, you know, if we need to get near that pin, we have to land it here. A lot of the caddies' work's done before they even go on the course. But perhaps that's, you know, some of the issue. A lot of the caddies aren't prepared as they should be. Karen, uh, as Hazy said, there's a million things we've only uh, we haven't even got anywhere near with you, and that is always probably going to be the case when uh, we are time poor. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hopefully, you have some great memories uh, throughout the week of your triumph at Woburn in '93. We can't wait to see them go around. True, major, major, the, Andy, major, major championship <laughs> winner here on Inside the Ropes. Joining us, Karen Lunn. Uh, thanks for your time, buddy. We um, we really appreciate yeah, you're it. Welcome. You're welcome, guys, and let's hope we can get an Aussie winner up this week. Wouldn't that be nice? Karen Lund joining us here on Inside the Ropes. Back with more. In fact, Lucas Herbert to join us after the break. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Great to have you with us and always great to catch up with uh, one of the young Tyros out there who's uh, making his way uh, through the game around the world. Always keen to find out what he's up to and what's next for Lucas Herbert. Uh, and the good friend of everybody here at Inside the Ropes have been good enough to join us on the show. Hey, Herbie, thanks for joining us, mate. Where, where do we find you? Thanks for having me on, boys. Always a pleasure. Uh, you've got me in Las Vegas uh, in America. So where have you come from and where are you heading to? Or is Vegas a bit of a, an R&R stop for you? What, what are you in the middle of going from and going to? Uh, so I played, the, I played the FedEx, WGC FedEx in June. Um, event in Memphis uh, two weeks yep. ago or three weeks ago now um, and then played the PGA Championship in San Francisco uh, and then we, we had five weeks off between that and um, the US Open over here in Wingfoot so uh, I could have obviously had options I could have gone back home to Australia but I didn't sort of fancy the two weeks of quarantine in a hotel room to not be home for very long um, I could have gone over to the UK and played some of the events over there uh, in the UK swing, but I uh, kind of figured that it would be best for me to stay over here, um, get some good practice in, get ready for US Open, and then um, head over to Europe after that. So so those two tournaments you mentioned, they're, they're the first two competitive hit, hits you've had at the level since March, I reckon, when you played in New Zealand. H- how's the game feeling? Do you... Does it feel a bit rusty or at the moment, or are you pretty? Do you feel? Can you kind of find your swing and find your rhythm pretty quickly? Um, to be honest, the technical components of it are actually kind of easy. Um, you know, they sort of as obviously the life of a golfer, you're always trying to balance the amount of time that you can have off away from the clubs, and then come back and be able to you know pick everything up as if you know you never left uh, when you you know usually the maximum you're kind of going to get off is like six weeks in a row. Um, that's a pretty big break. But then to have um, was like 20 weeks off or something like that, some absurd number like that, um, obviously gives you the, the freedom of choice to sort of figure out how long before the events you want to start um, getting ready to, to practice and, and prepare. So um, the physical, or the, the technical components, and even physical, I think as well. Um, I didn't really have an issue with it. It was actually more kind of the mental battle of switching back on into, into tournament mode and, and um, 
and kind of getting your mind ready to go out and play golf. And I think, you know, for me playing over here in the US, I don't get a lot of opportunities to play over here. And this is definitely where I want to play my golf in the future. So uh, I probably, you know, I struggle at these events just mentally putting a little bit too much pressure on myself to try and make the results happen now so that, you know, things happen now for me rather than just kind of sitting back and letting it happen a little bit and trusting that I've done the work and, and um, you know, not trying to force things too much and, you know, as a result, probably get a little bit too angry and, and uh, beat myself up a little bit too much about, you know, results not going my way. Herbie, we chatted to you last year, I think it was the USPGA, that uh, uh, Beth Page Black, maybe, I think, from memory. Um, was that right? And you yep. just had a couple of holes where it sort of came apart, but otherwise, you know, made a great debut at that level. Um, what's the... I saw your scores rather than any highlights from Harding Park. It looked like you played the vast majority of holes really well. Was there any marked improvement year on year? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely saw an improvement. Um, I didn't think I really executed too well um, at Harding Park. I thought uh, my my irons just weren't at the level they needed to be um, around that golf course. It was sort of, it was one of those courses where uh, you you had to, you know, you had to be very good with your iron play. Obviously, Colin Morikawa uh, won probably one of the best iron players in the world. So um, that sort of shows you, you know, what, uh, the level of play you need to be at. Uh, I missed two pretty short parts for the week, and obviously, you know, they happened. I can't take them away, but I felt like that's probably an area of my game that is a real strength. And if those two parts had gone in, which is not really um, asking too much, then I would have made the cut. And to be honest, it was I, I played quite average for the week. So for me, that was a that was a pretty big stepping stone because I felt like um, I was actually my game was probably actually at a level where it could compete in majors. Um, Obviously, it probably wasn't that week. But if you look at the, the range of like my worst golf to my best golf, I feel like my range was probably at a level that can compete. Um, whereas if I look back two years ago to like Shinnecock, my first US Open, um, obviously missed the cut there. But if I look back at that, I feel like if I had to play my best golf that Thursday and Friday, I still would have been 10 shots out of the lead come Saturday morning because I just wasn't ready for major championship golf yet. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I took some positives out of the week and that there was a lot of things that, weren't great and I still managed to be at a level that was competitive um so yeah I, I feel like I've got some things that I can definitely work on getting ready for Wingfoot, and I think if I can get myself right mentally in the right place to um to, you know be able to deal with the US Open they're obviously they're quite a different sort of brand of golf you, you're not going to make a hell of a lot of birdies and you're, you're trying to limit the amount of doubles that you make so if I can get my headspace in in the right place to play that, um, you know, I, I feel like I've got something to be excited about. This is a massive disadvantage, mate, to, to you know, we, everyone who rolled out of Harding Park um, either had the choice, obviously, of going to play the Wyndham Championship or roll on to the, the tournaments, the really big money, big pressure tournaments in the FedEx Cup coming up here. But you don't have that opportunity between the two majors. Is it is it a setback for you in that sense or is it something you, you've sort of come to terms with? Um, look, it's just a moment. Oh, it's a um, stage of my career that I'm at. I guess uh, I obviously would have loved to have played um, last week, whether, whether it be last week at the Wyndham or these three weeks uh, in the playoffs for the PGA Tour. Um, and hopefully one day that's where my career is at, and hopefully that's where I, I am playing one day. But um, that's not. I, I'm not upset about that. It's just a stage of my career that I'm at, and. If I keep putting in the, the hard yards and, and keep doing what I know I can do, then that won't be an issue one day. I, I think heading into to Wingfoot, I'd say 
uh, it could work both ways for guys. You know, they've just played um, FedEx and Jude at Memphis and then uh, the PGA Champs. Some of them might play Wyndham, and, but if they don't, they have a week off there and then play three in the playoffs. You, you'd think that they're going to be pretty gassed, uh, especially coming out of isolation where we just didn't get, you know, that match fit, uh, fitness for a while. So some guys might be a little bit tired when it comes to the US Open, um, but then some guys might be, you know, in that rhythm and that flow that you get into when you play a lot of events in a row. So it's a hard one to know uh, whether it would be beneficial to play them or not, but um, I can kind of only, you know, work off the situation that I've got in front of me. I can't look too much at what other guys have been doing. I imagine you'll take a bit of confidence out of your weekend um, at that St. Jude Invitational. You obviously played really well the Saturday, Sunday there. Can I go back a step? That question that Hazy asked you before, that, that, that answer you gave was really interesting about, um, you know, being confident that you can be competitive at major championship level now compared to where you were previously. How do you assess that, Lucas? What, what, what do you use as your, as your kind of um, guide for that? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think it's just a general feel coming out of the event. Um, yeah. I don't think stats can necessarily um, tell you a hell of a lot. I mean, as a, as a pure example, I think I lost strokes to the field at Memphis around the greens. But if you actually saw some of the shots, that I, I mean, I probably had four or five bunker shots that were plugged for the week that obviously you're pretty much straight away going to lose strokes to the field. You know, when your ball's buried on the in the side of a bunker, it's just impossible to get it close. Um, or, you know, there was there was just times where I, I wasn't even trying to go up the hole, but they get counted as, you know, shots within that um, that area. If you actually looked at the shots that I hit from places where I could get them to the hole, like my short game was really good that week. Um, and, yeah, you, I mean, you look at the guys that you play with, um, whether they be... I, I didn't necessarily play with anyone who was top 10 in the world, but I definitely play with some guys who put themselves up there on the, on the weekend and, and played some good golf and... You know, if anything, I felt like my game was almost better than theirs. It was just they they maybe had a better week than me, or got some you know slightly better breaks than me in, in certain areas, and um, all of a sudden that tells a different story on the scorecard. So, um, yeah, I mean, first event, first two events back as well. It's you're gonna you're probably likely gonna lose a couple of shots there. We're just you know not kind of being in that rhythm and that flow that you get into after you play for a while. So. Um, yeah, that was, it's just more of a general feel from the event, and yeah, yeah. you know, being giving giving yourself some really honest feedback as well. Like I said, if I look back at Shinnecock, like honestly, if I had to play my best golf there for the first two days, I I would have struggled to make the cut, and I would have I, I would have honestly been at least ten shots out of the lead. Whereas I felt like at, at Harding Park, I was like, wow, I, I played quite average, and I was very close to making the weekend, and that felt like my game was in a much better spot and had a much better opportunity to you know produce some results that I would like to be capable of someday. Herbie, I apologise because I think I said Beth Page Black. I did mean Shinnecock. Apologies for that. I just want to just run you um, back on the other side of the Atlantic for a minute because, you know, it doesn't take much research to find your name on the uh, Race to Dubai rankings these days, which is fantastic. But Andy and I were talking earlier about Sam Horsfield, for example, who's obviously won a couple of tournaments and you're still sitting, um, you know, handily above him in sixth place on the on the Race to Dubai rankings. Where does that sit on your list of important things to achieve this year, uh, and what's the what's the mission after the U.S. Open? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one, just given that um, I don't know I don't know what sort of playoff event we're going to get. Um, I think at this stage, the Nedbank 
Challenge in South Africa and um, the Tour Championship in Dubai are, are the only ones on the schedule, but we just don't know. It's very hard to predict what's going to go ahead with these events. Um, and it's, I mean, I think after Wentworth, we don't really have any kind of schedule through till Dubai, to Dubai either. So um, it's kind of tricky to, to get a feel of, you know, how the, how the season is going to play out and how it's going to look and, um, in a way, kind of how, how many points we're going to need to, to win or finish in the top five or anything like that. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a really tricky one to kind of get your head around in Europe um, with, that, uh, with that race to Dubai final. But I think, um, you know, I'll go back and play uh, in Europe after the US Open. Um, the fact that I'm going to be exempt for the end of 2023 is big. It means that I can, you know, really go out there and play with some freedom and, and not be, you know, playing for my job week to week, I think. Um, and, yeah, I think I'd love to finish in that top five on the Auto Merit in Europe. Uh, I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know um, what guys are going to kind of qualify. You know, I saw Colin Morikawa obviously went to the top of the, the rankings with a win at the PGA. I'm not sure whether he stays in the rankings to the end of the year or not. I, I'm just not 100% sure on how it all works. So, um, it, yeah, it's a tricky one to get your head around. But, I mean, if yeah, if I could if I could say that I finished top five on the European Tour uh, race to Dubai for a season, that's a pretty proud achievement, I think. Yeah, absolutely it is. Hey, <laughs> I wonder whether it's been such a strange year, you know, for so many people around the world. There's been more downtime, as you talked about before, than you would have liked um, in a normal course of events. Have you spent much time thinking about what 2020 could have been for you? Like, when when, when this kind of hit, you know, you were coming off a really nice run of results, you know, uh, starting kind of your Dubai and, you know, heading up to New Zealand. You played four or five events in a row where, you, you know, you were really competitive in all but pretty much one of them. Have you stopped and thought about what 2020 could have been for you, given the form you're in at the start of the year? Uh, no, to be honest, uh, yeah, I think on. I'm very, I'm very much roll with the punches kind of person. Um, you know, deal with whatever, whatever comes our way. So uh, I think it's sort of been the focus has definitely been more around, uh, you know, what events are going to be next on the European Tour schedule, or you know, just even the golf schedule going forward. Um, and how can I make something of 2020 versus sitting back and thinking what it could have been? Um, I think maybe later in the year, maybe after all the events are done and you know you can kind of um, fold the chapter over from what 2020 was, I think maybe then you might have a time for reflection and, and think what it, it could have been or um, you know what it might have looked like. But uh, in a lot of ways, I think it probably helped me. I mean, I was sitting at third on the race to Dubai when COVID hit and, and stopped us in our tracks. I mean... I wasn't planning to play a lot of golf. I think for those, I think for the first ten weeks of what COVID ended up being, my schedule looked very light then anyway. So, I mean, from a from a money list perspective, like that was probably a pretty good chance for everyone to get past me. So, uh, yeah, right. in, in some ways, like COVID kind of helped me. Um, you know, it helped me get to probably my highest world ranking that I think I've had um, to date. So, yeah, to be fair, like I haven't really thought of. If anything, what it could have been could have potentially also been worse than what it has ended up being. So, um, yeah, and, and I feel like with my form as well, I didn't play a lot of golf through October, November, December last year. Um, so, in a lot of ways, like, I was able to get my, my game to the level that it was to play the golf that I did off not a lot of match fitness. So, for me, like, there's no reason why I couldn't have done that again 
um, coming out of coming off uh, the quarantine period and not playing for a long time there as well. And how's Vegas suit Lucas Herbert and his entourage? How are you going over up in that in that glitzy uh, that desert oasis? How, how are you coping with the place? Is it <laughs> is it one of yours? Um, I enjoy coming here. I mean, I don't uh, I don't go too crazy. It's, it's always it's always fun to come here, but it's um, I, I try and uh, obviously behave myself somewhat. Uh, got a bit of obviously a bit of an image to kind of respect and and keep within the community and and i'm obviously over here representing australia in, in some form a capacity as well so i obviously don't want to carry on like an idiot but um yeah i enjoy coming here it's obviously really warm weather so um that's a, a massive positive um and yeah it's just a good i, I just enjoy relaxing and, and getting away from kind of normal life um out playing golf all the time and get a chance to sort of put the clubs in the corner for a while and, and you know just uh kind of sit back and I know I've obviously had a lot of time off prior to these two events but sort of getting back in the rhythm of you know preparing playing having time off preparing playing having time off as, as you schedule you know yeah, sure. uh, Herbie you mentioned the, the hot weather there um, I'm, before we let you go I'm, I'm intrigued did you I think you probably must have come down through Death Valley at least the region did you cop hold of that 54 and a half degree oh, day on Sunday over there uh, when did we drive? We drove We drove on Friday, so no, it wasn't too bad for us, but it was definitely hot. Um, but it was a really cool drive. I mean, we sort of, um, we planned to go from, to drive from Reno down through to Vegas. So you sort of go through Yosemite National Park and, and Lake Tahoe and then Death Valley as well. So, um, I mean, we, we did a couple of hikes up there that were amazing, some awesome views. And then obviously the drive was, was pretty unbelievable um, through all the mountains and, and whatnot, like, uh, it was something that I think I've always probably wanted to do. Just never really had the chance to kind of plan and do something. So um, I was glad I was able to sort of tick that one off the uh, the bucket list per se to um, you know make something of a bit of a trip where you got a lot of time off. And just just before we do let you go, do, like we're in you know you know what it's like back here in you know Victoria at the moment. We're in stage four lockdown and there's curfews and all sorts of stuff. It's a very altered. Um, reality that we're living in at the moment what's it like in america herbie when you're sort of wandering around the strip and stuff in vegas what, what are you what are you seeing um honestly it's probably a lot better than the than the media wants to report it as um i would say 90 percent of people even outside are wearing masks um it's obviously compulsory to wear it inside and um and you know staff and even the general public are, are very quick to correct you if you're not wearing a mask they, they want you to put it on pretty much straight away um yeah. everyone's Pretty, everyone's pretty on top of like sanitary um, kind of stuff, you know, wiping down benches or chairs or, you know, whatever you're kind of using a lot. Um, I mean, even the PGA Tour were great in our events that we played. They were extremely good with keeping everything sanitised and, and helping the players feel like we're safe. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, honestly, I've, I've felt quite safe over here, even though the numbers are probably going to report quite a lot different from that. Um, I've, I've felt quite safe and um, and pretty fortunate in a way, you know. I could I could be back in Melbourne right now on a on a pretty harsh lockdown. Um, you know, not being able to see any of my friends or be able to go out and do anything, um, especially in the Melbourne winters that we we all know are not really much fun either. Um, I feel like it's you know it's a real privilege to be over here and um, be able to have a bit more freedom with my life. Good attitude, good to hear. Uh, mate, you sound like you're in a really good space. Um, we can't wait to see you peg it up in four or five weeks' time, mate. Um, good luck. Thanks for joining us, and always good to hear your voice. Andy Hazy, thanks for having me, guys.
You're a Thanks, good man. Herbie. Lucas Herbert. Flying the flag over in Vegas, doing it the right way too. No tigers in his um, apartments. <laughs> no shenanigans going on in limos. None of that sort of stuff, which is very good to hear. Uh, well, back to wrap up Inside the Ropes on the other side of the break. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Just about done for another week. Um, how would you feel, Hazy, uh, if you've got uh, a 10 or 11-year-old kid and he's playing in a junior golf tournament and you're on his bag, you're in a caddy for him, you know, you sort of walk out at some public golf course over in the state somewhere and he's drawn to play some kid. I'll get the kid's name because I can't remember what his first name is. You Was get the, He's going to play ch- a kid called Charlie Woods. Oh, yes, <laughs> a lot of woods around. And the old man on Charlie's bag is Tiger. How would you feel? How would you feel? You might get a little bit intimidated on the first two, I reckon. You'd be beside yourself. Hopefully, the kid that you were supporting didn't look too hard at at Eldrick and get a bit starstruck. But <laughs> oh, uh, you you'd, you'd, you'd be very nervous once you saw Charlie's swing, Andy. I'll give you the tip. He goes all right, apparently. Well, I think he was a couple under or three under uh, through nine holes in winning the junior tournament there in Florida. That's a, so. little, that's a little terrifying, isn't it? It's a little terrifying. Uh, so that happened during the week. Oh, can I ask you, there's been a development. Obviously, Stephen Pitt was you know, a great friend to us here on this show. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the outgoing or, or gone, the, the exited CEO of, of Golf Australia. Yeah. I think a lot of people are of the view that maybe Simon Brookhouse might be a very short price favourite to another good friend of us here, uh, replace him. Well, well, that's not going to happen. Brookie's taken the job with his beloved basketball, heading up the Hobart team in the NBL, and we wish him absolutely all the best there. This is his passion basketball as much as he loved golf. Then the big name that bobbed up in a report during the week, I can't remember where, where I saw it, and apologies to the author of the story, but... James Sutherland, the former CEO of Cricket Australia, has um, been linked to the position. Did you read that, Jan? Yes, yeah, I did, and it was by John Pirrick um, in of the Age and the Sydney yep. Morning Herald, um, who's a brilliant reporter, always has been very straight down the line. Um, look, I don't know. That's the first no, no, thing. No, no, I'm not no asking idea. you to confirm it. No, no, no. If, you, if you'd asked me last week, I would have said that Simon Brookhouse was a reasonably warm favourite, and... I'd been fending off queries from Tasmanian media about um, him taking that role with the NBL club um, because he he was um, very much in the running to be the chief executive of Golf Australia in my in my understanding. Um, mm-hmm. So that's obviously hasn't panned out. So um, yeah, I have no idea. And I rang when my phone went uh, asking me the very question that you're putting to me now. I rang Andrew Newbolt, the chairman of Golf Australia, to find out the lie of the land. And he said, no idea. I couldn't. I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said I had any idea. So where the information's come from, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it's a name that's been widely linked this week. I think that, that article, A, uh, capped that off, but B, also prompted a bit more discussion. So who knows, Andy? I have yeah. no idea. Yep. Um, it does. He, he is a, a very keen golfer, James Sutherland. So... Um, whether that has sparked his interest, I don't know how he goes through the process. It's all done out of Golf Australia offices. So yeah, yeah, where yeah, we end up course. with will be an independently made decision. But yeah, it's, it'd, be, it'd be fascinating, to be honest. I, I hadn't really yeah, no, even contemplated it. Uh, you got anything before we wrap it up for the day? 
Yeah, I'm just contemplating what I might 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 or might not say about match play because there's been you know we talked earlier about the US amateur and and um, I'm just going to bite my tongue for a, for a while. There's been a lot of talk about the revised um, formats for the Australian amateur and other programs, and I have to say that despite a lot of changes, I think that 95% of everything that's happened in the past couple of months has been uh, for the benefit of the game. I have to go against party lines a little bit and say that I'm not in favour of losing the match play aspect of of the Australian amateur, but I, the uh-huh. the reasons are very clear, and that's to you know get tournaments played um, at an efficient place, at an efficient time, at the best club for the least money, so that everything works. Um, yep. I understand why. I do. I'm going to miss that Australian. The Australian amateur yeah, match play aspect there's no doubt about that yeah. and i might talk a bit a bit more about that in coming weeks when i sort of figure out what i can and can't say but i i, I do agree with a lot of the criticism that um has has come on to golf australia about that i don't think that everyone fully understands the reasoning behind some of the other things which i do agree with wholeheartedly um yeah it's going to be interesting disappointing yeah, that i love the match play yeah, yeah, yeah. and i'm on the record in this show several times saying that i find match play sort of tedious when it's at the uh pointy end of um not important championships and i do rate the australian amateur as extremely important so anyway i'll i might come back to that another day mandy but yep, i do have one yep. bit of housekeeping um if you don't mind um, Greg Oakford, who who really drives this sort of stuff for us, is asking me to let all our listeners know. He's getting pretty demanding, Greg. To be honest oh, with you, mate, Andy. He's, he's very uppity. <laughs> all our listeners around the country who, who are involved in a club or facility, um, there's a special webinar on this week with um, a name very familiar to you and I, Andy, our fellow Inside the Ropes co-host and lead content creator at Golf Australia, Justin Falconer. He's uh, going on a webinar. Uh, most of our listeners will know his uh, work one way or another. He's one of the best sport video producers we've got in Australia, and he's going to be discussing with clubs how they can produce and communicate with video content. So whether you're right. completely new to the world of producing video or whether you're already doing it, Justin's uh, webinar will provide valuable insight and um, no doubt takeaways uh, regardless of where you are on your sort of scale of video um, abilities. Uh, yep. The webinar is on Thursday. We're recording this on Wednesday. It will be up and running uh, through podcast channels before the pot, the webinar happens, which is at 11 o'clock on Thursday. So if you're listening to this beforehand and you want to register, head to golf.org.au forward slash webinars. Registration's free, only available to affiliated clubs and facilities in Australia. Uh, if you're listening after the fact, which will be the majority of you, I would imagine, we'll have details on the recording for you next week on the show. So um that that'll be pretty special because justin's got some he's got crazy skills as they say in the nba game Andy. oh he's great mate he's great and it is such an important it is such an important way of communicating these days um it's it's the way it's the way the future really so uh and it's there for everybody you really just need a laptop you don't need massive amounts of um, technical equipment these days, you can do it all. It's all you can do it on your phone. Like it's that it's, yep. the equipment is that available to you, um, and it's so effective. So, and Justin is, and I've I've worked in a lot of sports around the place. He is as good as any that I've seen in this space. He's very very good. So um, that would be really valuable for people to get involved in. I would have thought. 
Yeah, Heisen, thank you. That's I, and it. think he'll um yeah he'll he'll we'll have more on that next week because obviously it's short notice here, but he's a gun. He's a legitimate he gun. Is, so whether it's little Mickey Mouse social media things or whether it's grandiose um, elements that you want to put out about your club, it's well worth a listen. Here, here. Uh, good to see you, mate. Have a good rest of your day, a rest of your week, and I'll see you same time next week. You too, Murray. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Mark Hayes joining us as he always does. Wouldn't be inside the ropes without him. Thanks to Lucas Herbert. Thanks to Karen Lunn. Uh, and good luck to all the Aussies, particularly the girls who are teeing up in the British Women's Open this week. We'll be watching from AFAR. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great week. See you next time.